This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. A warning, this episode contains discussion of assault. The superhero movie The Flash has had a rocky trip to theaters. It's faced allegations against its star, rewrites, studio turnover, and COVID delays. The film was always intended as a hard reset of the DC Cinematic Universe, which has had a rough go of it itself lately. But while The Flash was being finished, a new creative director took over production of DC movies and promised to take the studio in a new direction. In that context, what are audiences to make of The Flash? Is it a new start or simply the last product of the outgoing regime, which was responsible for a string of critical and commercial disappointments? I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Linda Holmes. And on this episode of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we're going to have a different kind of discussion about The Flash because we have to. There is so much baggage surrounding it. We've both seen the movie and we'll get to our thoughts on it in a little bit. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the troubled production and what's happening with DC Studios. Now, The Flash has certainly been all over television for years. There was a 90s live action series starring John Uh Wesley Shipp. John Wesley Shipp. And the CW series starring Grant Gustin that just wrapped after nine seasons. But they have been trying to get a movie off the ground for a long time, right? Oh, man, yeah. There have been attempts to make a Flash live-action movie dating back to the 80s and throughout the aughts and the teens. And then Ezra Miller was hired for Justice League, and there have been several attempts to write them a solo script. They were all put on hold after a series of directors came and went from the project. In a meta sense, though, it doesn't really surprise me that a film about the Flash would be such a tough nut to crack because, you know, in the comics, if there's ever any a lot of confusion, Linda, (laughs) if there's ever like multiverse stuff or alternate timeline stuff or parallel universe shenanigans, any of that stuff going on. The Flash is always there at the center of all that confusion because he's the key. So my theory, meta theory, is that we had to wait for DC films to get kind of out of control, right? Right, right, right. I mean, the last Shazam film and the Black Adam film didn't really talk to each other. You know, they pretended each other didn't exist, even though they share the same origin story. We had The Batman, which starred Robert Pattinson out in its own universe doing its own thing. Oh, wow. I forgot about that. There were two Suicide Squad movies that were widely different in tones and sensibilities. And finally, you know, it's now that we get a Flash movie that could show this character doing what he does in the comics, which is to be at the center of a multiverse reset. We had to wait until the real-world box office stakes got high enough to bring him in to do kind of an in-universe repair job to justify a movie that was just about that. Wow. See? I'm already confused, and I've seen the movie. (laughs) We mentioned earlier that this film was always intended to kind of do what you're talking about to be a reset of the DC films and their continuity. But while this movie was already in post-production, James Gunn took over as the co-head of DC Studios. Uh, along with Peter Safran. James Gunn is the writer-director of Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy films, so it's a little bit of a crossing the streams. But he's spent a lot of time in the DC sandbox also. He made, as you mentioned, one of the Suicide Squad films, The Suicide Squad, and the Peacemaker TV show. And when he came in, he canceled a lot of planned projects, like more Superman films with Henry Cavill, R.I.P. Henry Cavill Superman, (laughs) and a third Wonder Woman film with Gal Gadot. So Gunn has indicated he wants to take the DC cinematic universe in a new direction. 
And given who he is as a filmmaker, as I mentioned, Guardians of the Galaxy, stuff like that, that likely means more humor and less of the extreme darkness that typified the Zack Snyder tenure with Man of Steel and Justice League. I think it's fair to say, and maybe this was what you were sort of implying, that the DCU could use a new direction after the Black Adam and Shazam 2 thing, not enormous successes for them. So given all that regime change, where does this movie stand? Is this end of an era? Is it new beginning? Is it something else? Oh, man. Uh, Short answer, yes. Long answer, who the hell knows? I mean, we aren't in the boardrooms. We are not in the editing bays. So look, there will come a reckoning, right? We're going to figure out at some point how the gun takeover affected this specific film, but that's going to be unclear until we get the oral history. And Linda, there's an oral history coming. We both know it. Let's just sit around and wait for it. I think we can just say it, it does what it's meant to do. It brings in all these elements from the Justice League, from the Keaton Batman films. And if you've got a good eye, you know, from a hell of a lot of other DC films and TV shows, and it says, look, this is all real. It's all valid. There's no such thing as a single canon or continuity. Let's stop trying. The DC universe is y'all come. Right, right, right. That's the organizing principle now is y'all come, which is something that's been true in the comics for a while now. So, you know, it's a very messy text. So if you want to see this as the parting shot from the Snyderverse, you know, you can find stuff in the text to support that reading. Also, if you want to see it as just a clean slate table setting for the Gunverse, there's something in there that suggests that as well. So you mentioned that a lot of other DC projects were canceled, but not this movie. Mm-hmm. This movie stars Ezra Miller, who's an actor surrounded by, I think the understatement way to say it, is a lot of controversy and legal troubles. So wow. we need to go through that history. Take me through that history. In 2020, a video went viral that appeared to show Miller violently assaulting a woman in a bar. Uh, Last year, they were arrested twice in Hawaii. First, they were charged with disorderly conduct and harassment following a physical confrontation with patrons in a bar. A few weeks later, Miller was then arrested and charged with assault in a separate incident. Later in 2022 in Vermont, where they have a home, Miller was charged with burglary for entering a neighbor's unoccupied home and taking liquor. That charge was later pled down to misdemeanor unlawful trespass, resulting in a fine and one-year probation. Two sets of parents have alleged that Miller has groomed or targeted their underage children. Mm. The allegations led to a restraining order and a protective order, but no criminal charges. A woman alleged to Variety that Miller harassed her following a consensual sexual encounter in Germany. No charges were filed. There's more. And if you're looking for, you know, a very grim one-stop shop, I'd recommend the Vulture article, The Complete History of Ezra Miller's Controversial Career, which they update as needed, and they've needed to update it. And, you know, Miller issued a statement in August of last year that said, quote, I now understand that I am suffering complex mental health issues and have begun ongoing treatment. I want to apologize to everyone that I have alarmed and upset with my past behavior. I am committed to doing the necessary work to get back to a healthy, safe and productive stage in my life. Short on specifics, but uh-huh. a general apology. What was DC Studios' response to the all the behavior? I mean, three guesses. The company defends its decision to maintain its relationship with Miller and release The Flash. Several executives have gone on record supporting uh, Miller for the journey of recovery that they're on. Uh, the director, Andy Muschietti, has said he'll be happy to have Miller back if there's a sequel. And uh, Miller made an appearance at the premiere of The Flash earlier this week and thanked the director and studio executives for all that. So uh, I think what we're looking at here, Linda, is a very messy pileup of abusive behavior and mental health issues and 
and a giant corporation's desire to kind of double down on an actor and a character that they've already sunk millions of dollars into. So look, some folks are going to see simply the act of buying a ticket to this movie as representing an endorsement of Miller's behavior or the systems that kind of give it a pass. Others, it's conceivable, I think, that might see going to this movie as a means to encourage Miller's recovery process. But let's be honest, most people are not going to do any kind of mental calculations like that. They're just going to go see a movie that has uh, Michael Keaton as Batman in it. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just that they're releasing this movie, right? It's that they're releasing this movie despite all of these allegations, but they're not releasing things like the Batgirl film. That was not like the planned Superman and Wonder Woman movies that got shelved. The Batgirl movie was already in post-production. So in other words, they had already filmed it. Right. They were doing the post-production and it's never going to see the light of day. It just died. Yeah, so Batgirl was directed by the team of Adil El Arbi and Bilal Fala, who directed Bad Boys for Life, which some people liked, and a few episodes of Ms. Marvel, which I think we all loved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the star was the Dominican-American actor Leslie Grace. If a Warner's executive was sitting here, I think what they would point out is that that Batgirl film was always intended to be part of its direct-to-streaming content. Just remember that prior to last year, Warner's strategy was to produce several DC movies, direct to theaters, and a smaller number of lower-budgeted DC movies that were going to go to, well, what was then, HBO Max. They abandoned that whole direct-to-streaming model and decided that the Batgirl movie wouldn't work as a theatrical release. Not for nothing, let's keep this in mind. Canceling the film, even at that very late stage, allowed the studio to take a big tax cut. Uh, Complicating all this is the fact that there is a Blue Beetle film coming out later this year that was also intended as part of that direct-to-streaming model, but that's getting a theatrical release in August, so, you know, who knows? Yeah, I mean, as you point out, The Flash comes with a lot of baggage, and, you know, we often talk about separating the art from the artist, because the act of creating a movie, directing it, writing it, certainly producing it, financing it, releasing it, is a an act undertaken by people, and therefore it has an ethical aspect. Mm-hmm. So to me, you know, it's difficult. I found in seeing the movie that it was difficult for me to sit there and try to say in a vacuum, if I didn't know everything that I knew, you know, how would I react to this movie? Because I can't unknow all right. of this stuff. And also, I feel fine about not unknowing all of this stuff. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, as you've mentioned with other films, you know, regardless of whether it's, I don't think it's, particularly ethical to release a movie with this baggage around the star, or if it's just relative to other performers and other controversies that have come up, if you feel bad or negative about that, to me, I don't feel an obligation to completely separate out the result from the creative act any more than I would if it was like, well, let's talk about how beautiful this shirt is, regardless of if it was made in a sweatshop, right? You don't have to do that. Sure. But I did my best to do that, to think about its merits as a film separate from all this. Mm-hmm. I think if people choose not to see it, For the reasons that we've been talking about, that's perfectly reasonable. But I I do want to try to talk about the film itself as a movie-going experience. Mm -hmm. Here's the setup. Ezra Miller plays Barry Allen, a member of the Justice League, who's feeling a bit underappreciated. He's also anxious because his father, played by Ron Livingston, is about to have his wrongful conviction for the murder of Barry's mother reconsidered. She's played in flashbacks by uh, Maribel Verdu. 
Barry decides to go back in time and tweak events so his mother lives, which results in catastrophic changes to the timeline that bring him into contact with a younger version of himself, mm-hmm. kind of bro Barry, maybe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also an alternate version of Batman, played by Michael Keaton, and with Superman's cousin Kara, played by Sasha Kaje. Uh, Together, they've got to figure out how to save this alternate Earth from the deadly designs of General Zod, played by, I feel I have to say, an unhappy-looking Michael Shannon. Yeah, but he's always unhappy-looking. Come on. Well, look, I just feel like sometimes you can tell that they're living it up and having a great time. I feel like he doesn't look that happy, but... Yeah, it was four days on a green screen. He's fine. (laughs) You know, that's it. The the time has come. Mm -hmm. Glenn, what did you think of The Flash? I mean, I thought it was fun. It does what it says it's going to do on the label. It starts off with a really great hero save the day set piece. And I'm a sucker for those. You show me a hero saving some average schmoes and I'm in. And if the average schmoes happen to be, as in they are in this case, tiny, tiny CGI babies <laughs> and a dog, what's going to be wrong with that, right? I mean, like, I, we will talk, I think, you and I, about the digital effects because uh, we have to. It's so weird because when the film is showing both Barry's together, the Back to the Future stuff, right? That is the most seamless I've ever seen it. It's, yeah, it works. It's very good. It's so good. And then whenever we get to the time travel stuff, we will talk. Look, I like the jokes. I like the references even. Uh, on a micro line by line level, I love this script, but I thought the characterizations were incredibly flat. And that's even more notable now because this film comes out in the shadow of Across the Spider Verse. And it's unfair right. to compare them, but let's compare them because in Across the Spider Verse, Everything you love about those movies, the humor, the heart, the stakes, they all grow directly out of how rounded and real those characters are. And that drives the plot. This movie is about the plot, which brings the characters along for the ride. Still fun, good jokes, but I went in looking for a meal and I got dessert. Yeah. First of all, I felt differently about that opening set piece than you did. I just thought it was kind of, I mean, as you mentioned, CGI babies and dogs. But it's like, I never really was afraid that they were going to start the movie by murdering a room full of babies. Therefore, it made it difficult for me to kind of get into it. But it was a puzzle that he solved. You know what I mean? Was it? I don't know. (laughs) I think part of my issue with this film, and this is a great example of how trying to separate this all out from, you know, the baggage of the film is a hopeless effort. Uh But there is a team-ish at times. But really, the team is Barry and other Barry. So you don't get to meet the kind of chemistry between multiple actors and characters that you get in a lot of other team superhero movies that I like. It also really makes it very stark that this is not a movie where you can be like, well, I'm going to go to it for the stuff other than Ezra Miller, because Ezra Miller is the movie. There are a couple of things that I think try to take off. I I really like Michael Keaton in this, weirdly. I think he tries to kind of flicker to life in this movie, but it never comes across to me as anything other than a stunt. Mm -hmm. I think he just doesn't have time. He doesn't really have character presence enough to make it feel like a fully formed person. Although I will say, he does his best, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are two female characters in this movie. One is Kara, the cousin of Superman. The other is Iris, who is sort of his love interest, but... Neither one of these characters gets to do anything 
that I thought was at all interesting. And his mother, of course, but she sort of exists to create stakes, which is the traditional role of mothers in superhero movies. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the character stuff, it's just too similar to the Batman story. And they kind of reference it a few times that these guys are both like, I'm traumatized by the loss of a parent or parents. But let us discuss the other big thing. (laughs) I just didn't like the visual language for not just the time travel stuff and not just the multiverse stuff. I don't even like the visual language for the powers for when he's going real fast. It creates a natural problem, right? Because it's not Spider-Man where you can see him swinging from buildings and stuff like that. When Barry is using his powers, when he is being the Flash, he is going so fast that he can't interact with the world. I just don't think it looks any better than, and this is not a dig at television, but I think television traditionally operates on much smaller budgets. Uh And I don't think it looks any better than what you would get on television for this. It's just a bunch of orange streaks. Uh I didn't find it particularly inventive. And that's before we get to the time travel. Yeah. Okay. So in defense of the running effects, I think they should just blur the legs, blur the legs, blur the arms. That's what they did on the TV show. And it works better than having him kind of be running at a slightly slower pace than the world is passing him by. That just looks dumb. Let's get to the CGI of the time travel. When we get into time travel mode in this movie, we get this thing that the movie isn't invented called the chrono bowl. Is it bowl? Yeah, it is bowl. <laughs> it's just a bowl. I was thinking ball, but now it that I think bowl. about it, it's the chrono bowl like the no, Hollywood it's bowl. bowl. I'm going to give that a pass because it's like this movie's, you know, uh, release the world engine, surrender the codex, who cares? But what happens in the chrono bowl is we see past events and characters kind of rotating around the flash. And that is some wildly terrible CGI. Not so much Uncanny Valley as Terrifying Canyon. And I have, here's my theory. Here's, I'm going to throw this out. This is what I almost convinced myself of. And I'm going to wonder now if I can convince you. What if that's like a stylistic choice? Right. Oh, I think it is a stylistic choice. What if everyone in the Chrono Bowl just looks like they stepped up the Polar Express and then Xerox themselves 15 <laughs> well, times? That's what, what I said to you previously about this was he keeps seeing people from his past and they all look like haunted puppets. It doesn't <laughs> seem like it's an accident. Yeah. And I would compare it to, for example, the fighting scenes in this film mm-hmm. make no effort to look natural or real at all. Right. It is a very heightened fakey looking, but it's clearly not inept. It's clear that this is a style. I'm not so sure. Okay, the first scene and sequence that involves Kara, the fighting is has no kind of, there's no sense that gravity exists or anything sure. like that, which is, I don't think it's ineptitude. I think it's a style choice. When you compare that to the chrono bowl, it's clear that they're going for a very otherworldly kind of feeling And I get it. And I don't think it can be an accident. Mm -hmm. I like to live in your world. And during the run of this film, I was living in your world. But as soon as I stepped out, I was like, oh, boy. Oofta. Yeah. Well, I think what I would say is it is fine. But if you are not inclined to see it, it is not a film that I would put myself in any sort of ethical quandary over. Mm -hmm. All right. Up next, what is making us happy this week? Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. 
One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to improving lives through invention, innovation, and climate action. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. In this country... Some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. It's time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What's making us happy this week? Glenn Weldon, let's have something upbeat. What's making you happy this week? I mean, the Tonys this last Sunday night. Did you watch them? I didn't. Oh, my God. You have to go back. I mean, the Tonys this year negotiated with the Writers Guild of America who were on strike, and so there was no script to the ceremony. Right. Um, but the Tonys are always the best award show ever, and that has everything to do with their essential nature, which is to be a three-hour ad for going to see a damn show, and also of watching that community of theater people in their element going full cringe, doing, you know, their jazz handing each other to death. That has nothing to do with the nature of the monologue or, or the presenter bent. Right. So this was the most performance-dense Tonys I can remember seeing, and that's what you want. You want the Tonys to offer up a sampler pack of contemporary theater. Did its damn job. The actual presenting of the individual awards, yes, that was dull, that was repetitive, as you'd expect it to be. So when the studios come to their senses and start paying writers fairly, next year, we're going to go back to normal. But this was a very risky experiment, but it really paid off because it served us moments like uh, this one from the musical Kimberly Akimbo, Victoria Clark, and Justin Cooley sing Anagram. I like the way you crack a joke, but no one else will get a little dry, a little droll, a little dumb. And yet, okra, cobra, marble, barley. I like the point of view. Bravo, cello, limit. All right, so that is the Tony Awards. I will be going back and looking myself. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. What is making me happy this week? I was on vacation last week in the wonderful state of Maine. It was cold and rainy, but I did not care because a big part of what I was doing was cuddling up and reading books. And one of the books that I read is uh, a new book by Megan Abbott called Beware the Woman. And there's a little bit of a mini trend, (laughs) I think, of stories that are kind of about pregnancy and kind of the mystery of, you know, what being pregnant is like that crosses over a bit with controversies in the news over reproductive rights and things like that. And so this is a book that is kind of a thriller about a woman who is pregnant and goes with her husband to visit his father. And it's just a story where she gets there and stuff starts to get creepy. And then it gets creepier and it gets creepier and it gets creepier. 
It's really terrific. Again, it's Megan Abbott's Beware the Woman. I enjoyed it a lot and thought it was awesome. So that is what is making me happy this week. If you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter. That's at npr.org slash newsletter. And that brings us to the end of our show. Glenn Weldon, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Good to have you back. This episode was produced by Ramel Wood and Mike Katzif and edited by Jessica Reedy and Sierra Crawford. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all next week. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.